So as I mentioned last night, my family and I lived in Africa and Zambia for a while. And uh, there, I need the little uh, receiver there. And, and there, um, behind the place where we lived was a, was a village called Shingoma. Shingoma was along the Kafui River. And it was, it's a beautiful river that flows along through, and it's, it's got a dam at one end. They dam it up to get hydroelectricity from it. And there's a village right perched on the edge of the river called Shingoma. And it's a, it's a typical African village with mud huts and grass that's roofed. And while we were there, they had uh, just recently gotten a cell tower on the mountain nearby. And so everyone that lived in this mud hut and, and mud huts and the th grass thatch roof, they had a cell phone on their hip. It was kind of funny. Um, so uh, the story I'm going to share with you is true. I spoke with one of the men who helped uh, with the boys that were involved in it. Uh, two boys, uh, Bornface and John. Uh, Bornface was nine and John was seven. They were out playing and their mother told them, listen, boys, don't go down to the river. I don't want you playing by the river. And they're like, mom, it's hot. Don't play down by the river. Well, as boys will, they wandered around for a while and they ended up down by the river. Now, the rivers in Africa are different here. They have a large lizard-like creature in there called crocodiles. They don't have alligators. They have crocodiles, which are a lot more aggressive. And um, there's a lot of crocodiles in this particular river. Most people don't know how to swim for the very reason that they don't ever get in the water. It's a terrifying experience. And um, so these two boys are playing by the water. And uh, the nine-year-old, Bornface, was, was in the water. It was hot. He was cooling himself off. It looked fine all around him. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a thrashing of the water. This crocodile came lunging out and grabbed him on the leg and started to pull him back in. His friend John screamed and grabbed his hand and was pulling. The crocodile was pulling into the water. John, the seven-year-old, was pulling out of the water. And there was a tug of war back and forth. I'd like to look at something in the scripture with you today. The judgment of God. We're going to start out in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. We've been examining in prophecy about the major movements that God has on this earth. Daniel 7 and verse 9, uh, he sees, I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Can you see the scene? God on his throne, fire, God's hair white, his garment white. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was seated. The books were set. It's an impressive scene. Before we dive into what prophecy has to say about this judgment, we need to set a little groundwork, a little framework about how God works. So looking in Genesis chapter 18, if you have your Bible, you can go there with me. Genesis 18 and verse 20 is where we will begin. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah had become exceedingly wicked, and God was going to deal with them and their wickedness. And in verse 20, we see, and the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. Now, do you find that verse to be a little strange? 
We're told in 1 John 3 that God knows all things. If God knows all things, isn't it a little perplexing that he would go down to figure out, is this what they're really doing? Well, there's a, something we'll see. This is about the character of God here. God does know all things, and he goes down there to see for a reason. This is a part of God's character. It's a part of who he is, and I hope that becomes clear to you as we go forward. So the two angels refers to them as men because that's they were perceived there. These two men were sent on, and the Lord stayed there with Abraham and explained to him what he knew about Sodom and what he was go- and Gomorrah and what he was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And verse 23, notice what Abraham does. He draws near. And Abraham drew near. There was something about what God had said that troubled Abraham. He was not satisfied in his mind. He drew near because he wanted to talk with God about this. And Abraham drew near. Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Just imagine, Sodom and Gomorrah had done wickedly. And a lightning bolt from heaven destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And he never talked with Abraham. What do you think would be happening in Abraham's mind? I wonder, did God destroy someone unfairly? Did God destroy the righteous and the wicked? His mind would have been perplexed. He could not have been satisfied because he would wonder that very question. Would you do that? And he continues, verse 24, perhaps if there are 50 righteous within the city, will you also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from you to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Isn't that a fair question? If God is going to take life, shouldn't he do it fairly, in a righteous way? This is what's running through Abraham's mind. Now keep in mind, the very first night, we talked about the great controversy. There, there was a battle that began in heaven between Lucifer and God. Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, but this war wasn't a war with swords and guns. It was a war about truth and lies. Lucifer, Satan, lied about the character of God, and he said that God was unjust, that he was unfair, that he was arbitrary, that he would give laws that had no reasoning to them. And then, if he took your life, it would be unreasonable. That's what he insinuated to Eve. So there's this accusation that Satan has brought up about the character of God. Now, if God has simply wiped Satan out, the good angels might wonder, did Satan really have a point? Maybe Satan, maybe Lucifer was right after all. So God has allowed Satan to work out his will on this earth, and we see the results of his plan. But it's the same on this earth. Abraham, in his mind, also needs to be sure that God is fair, that he is just, that his laws aren't arbitrary. And so the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord says that he finds 50 righteous in the city, he won't destroy it. And then Abraham says, well, how about 45? Okay, not for 45. How about 40? Okay, not for 40. How about 30 and 20 and 10? Surely you wouldn't destroy the city if there was 10 righteous. And then you think there's Lot, his wife, their children, and maybe, you know, that's probably 10. So he's thinking, at least my family is there. Surely God won't destroy my family. He's wondering this. And God says, no, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And the Lord went on his way. Abraham was satisfied because God had 
engaged him, and he had dialogued with him about this very subject. So several years ago, I worked at a school out in Utah, and uh, one of my daughters had become very good friends with another staff girl, and they were also good friends with another one of the students there. And the three of them had become disaffected, dissatisfied, and they thought, well, I know, we know what we'll do. We're going to run away. And so I remember that morning, I uh, went into her room, and, and uh, there was this lump on the bed that looked a little odd. <laughs> so I called her name, and, and she didn't move. And so I went over, and I, and I nudged it, and it was really soft. It was pillows and clothes she had stuffed in there to look like she was there. Oh, my daughter has run away. Where has she gone? This child, too much like her father. So uh, we contacted the other staff parents, and uh, they said, yeah, our daughter's missing too. And oh, and then we found out one of the students from the school was missing. That was an even bigger problem. And uh, we noticed some of our horses were gone. And um, so I borrowed a motorcycle. And I, and I took off, and I went and made a loop around the school, and I found what I was looking for. And I took off. And sure enough, I found them right behind a clump of bushes up in the, up in the desert there. It, where we were, it was kind of desert. And so it was just a lot of dust, you know. Um, they were so surprised. How did you come right here? How did you see us? How did you know? <laughs> I mean, they had horses. <laughs> and you could see the hoof prints. I could follow it as fast as a motorcycle could go. And there they were. Tracks. The tracks led me to where they were. I want to look at a few Old Testament narratives, stories, that are tracks, that help us to see how God is moving, how he interacts with us in times of judgment. The first one I'd like to refer to is Adam and Eve, the very first time of judgment. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, clearly disobeyed God, and God came down into the garden in the cool of the day, and he's walking there. Adam and Eve heard his voice, and you know what they did. They went and hid. And so, um, so here we see, Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And Adam, knowing he couldn't hide now, said, We're over here, <laughs> behind the fig bush. And um, it's interesting. We see a pattern developing. Now with Abraham... He said, I'm going to go down and see if these things are so. But we know God knows all things. He was investigating to see if this was true. Not because he doesn't know, but to satisfy the minds of those who are worried that indeed he is being fair. So the Lord knew where Adam was, but he was investigating and allowing Adam to share. And so he did. He shared. Uh, I'm hiding behind the fig tree because I'm naked. <laughs> well, why are you naked, Adam? Again, we see God asking the question, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? God knew this, but he's allowing the investigation to become clear so that minds can be satisfied that God's judgment isn't arbitrary. It's based on the facts of what has really occurred. So Adam, as you know, is a real man, and he blamed his wife for what he did. And by extension, he says, the woman that you gave me, blaming God. And so the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? 
Before God does judgment, he asks a question. He investigates to see if these things are really so. We've seen that from two stories, Abraham, and we've seen it from the story in Genesis. We also have the very next story in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, where two brothers become disaffected with each other, one so much so that he murders him in cold blood. The Lord comes down and he says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Are you seeing the tracks? Are you seeing the pattern? Am I making something up? Do you see this? God is asking a question. Now, I believe according to 3 John, or I think it's 3 John, God knows all things. I have no doubt that he knew what Cain had done with Abel. But he was asking, and he said, I don't know. Um, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out from the ground, clearly indicating God knew. He was investigating before pronouncing judgment. And the very next verse, he, the Bible says he cursed Cain and put a mark on him. Before judgment, God investigates, not because he doesn't know, but because he's fair that way. Prior to the flood, the world had become wicked. The Bible tells us that the imaginations of their thought were were evil and that continually. And we see the scripture says in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord saw. The scripture takes note of that, that God was looking, he was investigating before judgment was given and the world was wiped out. And then we have... Um, after the flood, we have the, uh, I have a typo here that you can't see. I'm like, why did I do that? <laughs> After the flood, the people on the earth were defiant. It's like, God can't, he can't judge us that way. It's not right of him to wipe out the world. No, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to make our own kingdom and we'll make a tower that God can't destroy. Defiance against God, saying his judgment wasn't right. And so, what do we have the scripture saying? But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons had built. Um, he came to see the city. Again, we have the scripture clearly indicating God investigates before there's a judgment. And we know the judgment that happened. So what about, these are small judgments somewhat, but there is a huge judgment where God will judge the world. What about that? Is God the same yesterday as he is today? Does God investigate in small things like he does big things? Acts 17 and verse 31, we're told that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge this world. He will hold us accountable. He will make right that which has been made wrong. And... Uh, he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. We know that's Jesus Christ. So this judgment scene, a fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was seated and the books were opened. We see the same scene pictured in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And it continues. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. 
and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So we see books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. Books and book of life. So book is one. You would agree with me? Books is at least two. And then we have the book of life separate. So as I count, and I'm not the best at counting. You can ask my wife. That's three. It's about as high as I can go. You see, I have to have two hands to do it. Uh, books and book of life. Okay. Now, this is important. And the dead were judged according to their works um, by the things which were written in the books. So these books must hold things in them that talk about their works. What did you say? Well, it tells us in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He will bring every work into judgment. And it also says whether good or evil. So these books include works, and these works include what is good and what is evil. So I'm going to call one of these books the book of record. The Bible doesn't actually say. You can call it whatever you want. But in my mind, uh, there's three different books, at least. And when I search the scripture, I come up with three categories of books. So I'm going to call this first one the book of records. And it has within it a certain category of records. Behold, it is written before me, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers. So God has written before him our iniquities. And if they're written, they must be on something that you write in. I would say it's probably a book. Uh, Matthew 12 and verse 36, Jesus said, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So we're going to be held accountable in the judgment for our words. So our iniquities and our words must be in this book. Also, we're told in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, that God will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Wow, how exhaustive this book must be on me alone. It has iniquities, it has words, even the thoughts of the heart. There is another book. I call it the book of remembrance, and I think there's a biblical reason for this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance, hence the name, was written before him. Now, this is a different book. It has different things in it. Uh, for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. So this book of remembrance is about those that are following God. And look what's in it. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds. Don't wipe them out. How could they be wiped out unless they were in a book that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. And then David says in Psalms, you number my wanderings. You put my tears into your, into your bottle. Are they not in your book? In this book, it's different than the other one. The other one has the bad stuff we've done. There's one that must be like God's keepsake. He keeps it close to him. In this book, it has the things that his people have done that are nice and good. Why? Because they're good? No, but because Jesus is in their life. And they have good deeds. And they even weep tears. You know, God cares about your tears. He puts them in a bottle and he writes down that experience in his book. 
And then there's the book of life. We saw this mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Jesus told the disciples as they had been out and they were feeling so proud of themselves, they had cast demons out and they had healed people and they just thought they had really arrived at the pinnacle. And Jesus says, don't rejoice for that, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Uh, We're told in Philippians that the saints' names, whose names are in the book of life. So the disciples' names written in heaven must be written in the book of life. And there shall be a time of trouble, Daniel says, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. So the people whose names are written in this book are delivered. Praise God. Do you want your name to be in that book? I want my name to be in that book. Notice, they will be delivered if their name is in that book. And then anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is one book I certainly want to have my name in. So you'll notice, if your name is in it, you'll be delivered. If your name is not in it, you'll be destroyed. Life and death. So how do you get your name into the book? This is how I see it. 1 John 5, 11, and 12. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life. And he that has not the Son of God has not life. Is it simple? Is it clear? How do you get your name into the book of life? Have the Son. How do you get your name not in the book of life? Don't have the Son. It's very clear. Those that choose Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, their names are placed in the book of life. So there are three different books that I have seen. Maybe there's more, and and share with me later what you have found. But uh, those are the three that I see. So, um, okay, so let's try to recall. What is the first book that we talked about? The Book of Record. Book of Remembrance. You remembered, praise God. And the book of life. Okay, excellent. Book of record, book of remembrance, book of life. Yeah, three books. Not so challenging. Okay, so who is going to be judged? Who will be judged? Is it just the wicked that will be judged or all the righteous also judged? Well, according to Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Sorry, if you're righteous, you also get judged. That's what the scripture says. Romans 14, 12 says, each of us shall give account of himself to God. We shall have to give account of ourselves. God will, he is taking record and he's going to look over those records. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Uh, Paul says. Now, this is an interesting, interesting statement. The Corinth, Corinthian church was bickering and fighting and they would take each other to court. And Paul told them, don't take each other to court. And his reason for that is, don't you know that the saints will judge the world. Now, if the righteous are judged and the wicked are judged, it must be that the righteous are judged before the wicked because the righteous will have to be determined to be righteous so that they can be part of the judgment. That's a little bit of deductive reasoning. Uh, 1 Peter 4, 17, we're actually told that. For the time has come for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. The righteous are judged first. And if it begins with us first, what shall be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay. Um, And then we're told here in Luke 20, but they which shall be 
accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. So to be accounted worthy means you are judged, and it's determined in this judgment whether you are worthy to obtain that world, the resurrection, and to be a child of the resurrection. We're told in John 5, 29, there's, that there's actually two resurrections. Were you aware of that? There's two resurrections, not just one. John 5 says there's two. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We have the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. Now, in Revelation 20, verse 6, he tells us, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. I don't want to be a part of the second resurrection. Sorry. That's the second death. You're going to be raised to die eternally. I would like to be a part of the first resurrection. So there is two resurrections. And that first resurrection has to do with the judgment of the righteous. They will be judged and determined whether they are worthy to be a part of that resurrection. Revelation 22 verse 11 gives one of the most solemn pronunciations in all of the Bible. This is where God has finished his work of judgment of the righteous. And he says, who, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. God has investigated the books. Is he righteous? Has he accepted Jesus as his Savior? Does he have the Son? Okay, be holy still. Has he rejected Jesus? Does he not want the Son? Be filthy still. At the end of this declaration, notice the next verse. And behold, I come quickly. The judgment actually begins and finishes before Jesus comes back at the second coming. The reason why this is so is because Jesus is determining who is worthy to be a part of the resurrection. Now, we should be clear here. What makes us worthy? Jesus makes us worthy. His blood covers us, washes us clean, makes us new and whole. None of us are worthy because of what we have done. We're only worthy because of what Jesus has done. Jesus is what makes us worthy. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Now, it just makes sense. If Jesus is going to bring a reward, he would have to determine what that reward is before he brings it. Hence, there's a judgment before. Over and over again, the scripture is clear. There's a judgment before the second coming. Revelation 14 and verse 6. If you have your Bibles, we'll go there together. 14 and verse 6. Now, we looked at the second coming last night, and we noticed in this passage, Revelation 14 and verse 14, that is where Jesus comes back again. But just before he comes back again, there is a last call to the world, calling for them to turn from their sin to the God who wants to save them. There's three calls, three messages, and it's said that they are like angels flying in the midst of heaven, having this message. Now, the first message is in verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. I'm in Revelation 14, if you're looking for it. And verse 6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. What does this angel have? 
the everlasting gospel. This angel is sounding the gospel, and while he is giving the gospel, please note what also is also is said. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. While the gospel is being given, there is a call that goes out to say that the judgment has begun. The judgment begins before Jesus comes the second time. This passage makes that clear. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Zechariah. And in, the, in Zechariah, there is a scene given where the Lord is standing, where the Lord is here. He's on his throne. And, and there's, there's two individuals before the Lord. There's Joshua the high priest, who's clothed in filthy garments. Must be his own righteousness, right? Filthy garments. And he's standing before the Lord, and I'm sure his head is hanging because he says nothing. And beside Joshua is Satan. The scripture says it's Satan. And Satan is accusing Joshua before the Lord. He's saying, look at his filthy garments. He is filthy. There is no way you can take this man. And then look what the Lord says. Then he answered, this is the Lord, and spoke to those who stood before him, Joshua and Satan. Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. In the work of the judgment, God wants to take away the filthy garments, our own righteousness, and he wants to clothe us with Jesus' garments of righteousness. He wants us to become clean and white and pure and free in him. This is what the judgment message is about. God wants to redeem his people from all iniquity. And when Jesus comes, he will have a pure people, holy. Not because of what they have done, but because he has taken away their filthiness and clothed them with his righteousness. Genesis 7, and beginning in verse 5, the scripture tells us about Noah. He had preached for 120 years that the flood was coming. The people had listened, but they had not heard. At this time, his wife and family, they received a signal from God it was time. And they went into the ark. And while they were in the ark, at the call of God, because judgment was coming, the world was to be destroyed. The people outside were in disbelief. They were mocking these silly people. What is this ark? What are you doing? And they were there, the scripture tells us, one day, waiting, sitting there. They were there two days. They were there three days. They were there four days. No rain. They were there five days. They were there six days. Nothing. Not a drop, not a spatter other than spit. They were just inside. Their faith was tested. The people outside were convinced, these idiots, they're going to come out of here once they run out of food. And all those animals, well, they might be a while eating all those. Seven days they were there. The scripture tells us that after seven days came the waters of the flood upon the earth. The seven days they were there waiting. A judgment had happened. Those that were outside the ark had made their decision. Now, the scripture tells us clearly what Jesus tells us, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. 
They were busy with life, not realizing that their judgment had passed. They had no more opportunity. They stayed outside and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Jesus said, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Bornface was terrified. He'd heard of people dying by crocodiles. But he thought, it's not going to happen to me. But in that moment, when those teeth went through his flesh, and it was pulling with its might, and when a crocodile's mouth closes, it doesn't open. They have a strong grip. And it was pulling his leg in. And he screamed, and his friend John grabbed him, and there was a tug-of-war between the two. This story is true. They were fighting and tugging and trying with all their might. Believe it or not, the crocodile lunged to get a better hold. And when he did, John pulled just enough to get him out. And they went running up onto the shore. <sighs> Boardface would have died, but for one who grabbed a hold of him and would not let go because he loved his friend. In the judgment, it's that way. There is one who wants to destroy you. He wants to pull you down to perdition. But there's one friend that's closer than a brother. He's trying to pull and redeem every one of us. There is a judgment that's coming. Noah's in the ark, as it were. We have a decision to make. Do we want to be ready for the coming of Jesus? We're told how. He who has the Son has life. Lord, take away my filthy garments. Clothe me with your righteousness that I might be clean and whole. Is that what you want? How many of you are like that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is none righteous. No, not one. But there is a righteous one who gave his life that we might have life. We're told in scripture that Jesus is interceding in the heavenly sanctuary, pleading for his people. Lord, help us to respond in faith, by faith, to the one who gave all. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.